Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Well, it's a, it's a new year, a new year, and, uh, and it requires that we remind ourselves of some very basic things when it comes to the reality of the world that we live in. I don't know about you guys, but when I look around the world, there are days I read articles and I'm like, what is going on out there? Like, this is, this is craziness. This world is, is going nuts, right? And, and there's a reason for that, and it's largely because of veritas. It's because of truth. And the church has a responsibility to support and proclaim the truth. And the world believes they know the truth, and they've got a version of the truth. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Our passage in 1 Corinthians touches on a truth that we're going to spend most of our time on today. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of... um, really a few ultimatums that every person has to face in this life, all right? And when Pontius Pilate questioned Jesus, he said, he asked that famous question, what is veritas? What is truth? I mean, what is that? Just flippantly, you say you know the truth. He says he knows the truth. She says she knows the truth. What is truth really? How can one man confidently say that He knows the truth. And do each of us get to have our own truth? Uh, Kevin over here has a truth and Amy has a truth. And one truth in the world's eyes today apparently is not superior to another truth, right? They're all just living their truth, okay? But they can't both be right. I mean, folks who want to live in a, in, a, in a fairy world, that's, you know, that could be something that that they might hold to, they might believe, but there can only be one truth. And what if the consequences of getting the truth wrong are eternal consequences? Now, this is what really gets down to the heart of the matter. What if the truth really does mean that we face eternal consequences if we get it wrong? We've all come to a conclusion ourselves, or we We wouldn't be here this morning, at least we've wrestled with it, or we believe we've come to a conclusion. But as true followers of Christ, we believe there is but one truth, and that following any other way, as Christ stated, any other version of truth, that it leads to eternal destruction. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is destruction. Every answer we seek in this life concerning our spiritual well-being and concerning our eternal destiny, it can be found in the Word of God. Everything that we want to know about that. And the fact is, though, that 90% of human beings are born, they go about their lives concerned only with what they can achieve or accumulate. They seek attention. They want to be seen, right? How, How often have you heard that, I see you? How often have you heard that lately? They want to be seen. They want to be known. All right, They want to bask in their own intellect or talent. They live to feel. They just want that next emotional hit as if they are addicted to their emotions. They want to belong. They want to find worth. They want to find love. They want to find meaning and purpose. And ultimately, every human being is born with a need within them that they are trying to fulfill and satisfy that need. They are desperate for all of those things, but the tragedy is that all the while, most of them completely ignore the life-giving truth of God's Word, which offers the perfect fulfillment of each and every one of those things that they desire, but it comes only in relationship with Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal glory. We know that we know that, the, that it's not all about this life and that there is a, a, an eternal existence ahead of us. Now, most self-proclaimed Christians today, they want to have it both ways. 
They want to wear a badge of Christianity and say, I'm a Christ follower, but they want to live their lives like the rest of the world. And Scripture tells us that we can't have it both ways, that His sheep, His sheep hear His voice, and His sheep obey His commands. And when you hear the truth proclaimed, you will then be held accountable for what you do with that truth. So every time you sit in front of a pastor who's proclaiming the Word of God in in right fashion, then you are going to be held accountable to what you do with that truth. And that's why a lot of people don't want to put themselves in that situation. I'd rather be ignorant and not know what God says. I'd rather live my life and pretend that we all uh, somehow emerged from a, a primordial goo, right? And we came from apes. It's much easier to believe that there's no accountability and that there is no eternity and that once we die, we die and that's that and, you know, so live it up while we can. It's much easier to embrace that than it is to embrace that there is a holy God and there is one way that leads to life and that we have to find that one way. And if we don't, there are consequences, eternal consequences. Those who accept the truth of the gospel, his sheep, His disciples, His people, they know truly that we have freedom in Him. And they use His freedom, they use their freedom for Him. Do you understand what I'm saying there? We have freedom in Christ, but then we get to use our freedom for Christ. We get to use that for Him. We serve Him because we love Him. It's not out of an obligation. We choose to lay aside the treasures and the trappings and the pleasures of this world and the wisdom that this world has to offer. We choose to lay those things aside so that we may honor Him and His sacrifice that set us free from the bondage to those very things that would ultimately destroy us. There has always been and will always be a tension between these three different types of people that more than likely you are surrounded by in your life. Number one, there are those who are true followers of Christ and they live their life in such a way that they seek to honor Him in everything that they do and say in every way they possibly can. Okay, that's number one. Number two, there are those true followers of Christ who struggle to find the courage to separate themselves from the world and the flesh. And then their number three are those who proclaim that they are followers of Christ, but it's obvious by their life, by their lack of fruit in their life, and their embracing of the world's lies that more than likely they are not true followers of Christ. So anybody can wear the badge but we know that Scripture teaches that just because someone calls themselves a follower of Christ, that they are not always truly a follower of Christ. And we see this tension at play in our passage this morning uh, in 1 Corinthians, and it's chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. We're gonna, uh, if you want to turn there, we're going to be there in just a moment. But Paul has previously discussed these factions or these divisions that have taken place in this local church body, and for various reasons. And in this passage, he points out that there are two groups at fault in this new issue that he brings up. And there are those who are engaging in sin that they should be ashamed of. But also, there are people in the church who are themselves, they are living right, they are following the Lord, but they are shirking their responsibility to hold those people accountable in their outward sin, okay? And so let's read that together, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 and 2. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become puffed up and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. All right, so in the next 
few weeks, we're going to be looking more at this passage of Scripture. We're going to see the process of what it looks like in a local church when someone is uh, outwardly sinning in a way that, that is clearly defined in Scripture and how the church, the local body, should react to that and, as Paul states, remove them from your midst. That is a process that actually should be taking place in churches today. It protects the unity within the church. It protects the purity of the church and how uh, that church can influence those around them. If the church is impure and it has got cancerous sin in that local body, then the church will most likely lose its influence in the community and will no longer be able to be a light in the darkness, okay? So we're going to cover some of those in the next few weeks, but today I want to zero in on this one line in verse 2. It says, you have become puffed up and have not mourned. You have become puffed up and have not mourned. So I want, to, I want you to think about a situation in your life that has actually caused you to mourn. What has actually caused you to mourn personally? The most common occurrences are when we've lost a relationship in which we get great fulfillment in some form of relationship. When we feel a great sense of loss, and particularly a loss that we have no control over, a loss that we can't change, okay? When we're small, it can be the loss of a pet. And I'm a grown man, and I can tell you that the loss of a pet as a grown man is pretty rough, right? Um, for some, you know, the fallout from divorce, from a broken relationship and a divorce is, is devastating and, and brings about a deep sense of mourning. And the worst kind of mourning, of course, is the loss of someone that we dearly love, someone that we dearly love. It feels like there's a hole right through the middle of us, and our mind cannot make sense of the fact that we had a relationship in this particular context with this person in our life, and now it has changed in such a way that it has altered our life. And as I said, to make it even more difficult, there's absolutely nothing that we can do in our own power to fix it. We can't make them come back. We can't fill the hole. There's nothing we can do to bring a new sense of fulfillment of that, of that person that is now missing out of our life. It is a loss of relationship. And this is the way Scripture describes the relationship that every believer should have as a result of their sin. This is interesting. The proper response to sin of any kind for the believer should be mourning. It should be mourning because it leads to a loss of relationship. When we look back at the Old Testament, in one of the great Psalms of David, he, he puts into words in a poetic fashion the depths of pain of this kind of mourning, and he kind of expresses, I think, I know what I've felt and probably what you felt when you lose someone you love and you're trying to make sense of it in your head and you can't and you just want to go to sleep, you just want to turn your brain off, you just, you know, and, and so here he cries out in Psalm 55.5, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away, I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. So here's a man that's describing the chaos of his situation as if it's a terrible storm, a chaotic storm around him, and he wants to escape the pain and the sorrow that he's feeling in those moments. And we too, when we have to face this kind of loss in our life, uh, with all of our heart, we just want peace. We just want peace of mind. And people in this world, they long to get away, to look away, to run away, to find the place where sorrow doesn't exist, where the pain of the reality of this fallen world is not present, where justice can finally once and for all be done. And most run to the very things that will only ensnare them, enslave them, and ultimately destroy them. That is the world's answer. They, when there's this void, they run to the things that 
will ultimately bring about their destruction or trap them and ensnare them. They seek happiness, comfort, and healing in the things of the world, but eternally speaking, those things are like a mirage to a person who's, who's been you know, stuck out in the middle of a desert and is, and is desperate for water. These things promise to quench their thirst only to deliver a mouthful of ashes. I mean, really. And although it sounds like a paradox, like it doesn't really make sense, the only way to have true peace is to face the reality and destruction of the storm, and it is to fall at the feet of the one who can calm any storm. Scripture tells us that before we can ever see Christ clearly, our eyes must be washed in the tears of our own mourning. We cannot see Him unless we are first washed in the tears of our own mourning. We must be made aware of our own loss of the most important relationship of our existence. That the reality is that your sin, your pride, your arrogance has caused this great rift between you and the Eternal Father. Your rebellion has severed your connection to Him. And if you are ever to be comforted, if you're ever to find peace, you must first mourn over your own sin. You must mourn over the loss of that relationship. And there's not one person that has ever been born that is, that is exempt from this tragic situation. Not one. The Spirit through the hand of Paul describes to us our dire situation in Romans. And I want to compare today what Paul says versus what Jesus says. And so I'd like you to turn to Romans 3, beginning in verses 10 through 23. Romans 3, verses 10 through 23. And to be clear, what is being defined and described here in this passage of, of Scripture is every single person who's ever been born, including you and I, this is describing you and I, and the statements are very clear, very simple, very easy to understand. And here's what it says. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Verse 11, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. Now, just a thought here on that one passage. I've heard some say that we are basically good people, that humanity is basically good, and that we're worth so much to God that He bankrupt heaven in order to save us because we were worth so much to him, but that is not what Scripture teaches us. What this passage is clearly telling us is that if we could take every human being that's ever been born throughout all of time, every one of them, and you somehow could add up and quantify the worth of their righteousness and the righteous acts that they did. So take every human being, add it all up, and present it to God, and what does this say? It says that it's worthless, that it would be worthless. And then it says in the, next pa in the next verse, there is none who does good. Forget righteousness, there's none who does good. Remember Jesus saying, why do you call me good? There's no one good except the Father. When did we get the idea that we were good people? When did we get that idea? Jesus said, there's no one good but the Father. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat, and here it gets pretty heavy, their throat, because it's talking about us, remember? Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law, so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. So what is this passage telling us here? It's saying that the law specifically 
if you even look at the Ten Commandments, it condemns every single one of us as sinners. And, and of course, you may be thinking, well, wait a second, I've never shed blood. I've never murdered anybody, but let's, let's remember what we just read in our passage of Scripture when Jesus said, if you've ever had anger in your heart towards your brother, then you have committed murder. He didn't lower the bar. He didn't say, hey, guys, you're so cute. I'm going to lower the bar, and all you have to do is be cute. I just love all of you, right? No, he said, no, you're actually much worse than you think you are. If you've even had anger in your heart towards your brother, then you've committed the sin of murder. If you have lust in your heart towards another man or woman, then you have committed adultery. You are guilty of that sin. He raised the bar to an impossible level, and he did it for a reason. Because we're supposed to feel hopeless in that moment. We're supposed to feel hopeless knowing that it's beyond us. And there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. In Matthew 5, Jesus is, as I said, very specific when He says that. And to cap it off in Romans 3.23, Romans 3.23, you've read this before, for all. How many is all? (laughs) It's all. (laughs) For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. It means me. It means you. So the point of this one truth is that we're all guilty. We're all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory that God deserves in His creation reflecting His image. Okay? So then we have to own up and face the consequences of that truth, of that reality that we cannot point the finger at anyone else as Adam did and said, the woman made me do it, right? Uh, we can't do that. In Romans 6.23, we see the consequences that we all have to face for our rebellion toward our Father. It says, for the wages of sin is death. When you go work eight hours, you're going to receive a wage for that work. You're going to receive payment, right? Well, it's saying your sin, when you sin, you are going to receive payment for your sin, and the payment for your sin is death. And that's what's coming to every single one of us, okay? But it's not the first death when we stop breathing. It's not those consequences that we should be the most concerned about when considering ourselves, when considering the people around us that we love. We should be concerned more so with the second death. It's described in Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 21, 8. It says, um, oh, and by the way, note in the very first thing it mentions, it says the the first two sins are cowardice and unbelief. Cowardice and unbelief. Let's let's read that together. Again, it's Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexual immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's spiritual death. I know it's not acceptable these days for preachers to say the H word, but God's word says here that the second death is eternal separation in a place called the lake of fire. And folks, that's hell. That's what that's talking about. I'm I never want to be accused of trying to scare anyone or manipulate anyone, but rather I'm actually just trying to show you what God's Word actually says, what His Word says. And there are truths in God's Word. If we are not in right relationship with God, there are truths in God's Word that should frighten us. It should terrify us. There is a realization that should rock each and every one of us to our very core if we stop and really consider it. We are eternal beings. You were not created for time. You were created to exist outside of time. You are eternal beings. And one day, this body will draw its last bit of oxygen on this earth And you will step, you will transition from this reality, this life, into the next life. 
And if we in that moment stand before a holy and righteous God and appeal to Him on the basis of our own righteousness and our own goodness, our own spirituality, if we beg Him and say, Lord, did we not perform many miracles in Your name? Did we not cast out demons and do all of these incredible things in Your name? And amazingly, He says, depart from me. You who work iniquity, you sin-doers, for I never knew you. I never knew you. And if you had ever truly laid down your pride and arrogance and mourned over your sinful state, then that is the gateway to be able to stand before God with confidence because you recognize who you are and you recognize who He is. But if you stand before Him on your own righteousness, you will stand condemned and He will say, depart from me. Without Jesus, folks, the reality is there is no hope. Without Jesus, all is lost. And I look around me sometimes in public places, and I am overwhelmed with the tragedy that is so many people's lives, that they live their lives grasping at everything around them that, to try to fulfill that need, and they are in rebellion against God. They have no desire whatsoever to, to know Him, to be near Him. So how amazing is it that we know Him, that we've heard His story, that we have the Word of God in our lives. He, he has orchestrated that in your life. A quick mental review of the sins that each and every one of us have committed, it should cause us to be broken and to weep. Each and every one of us can probably think that moment in our life is probably, there's one moment in our life, maybe five, maybe ten, I don't know. I don't know your story, but you look through your life and you think, yeah, there's, there's a few moments there that those were my lowest points, that those were the times I know that I've disappointed myself, and those are the times that I know that I fell short of God's glory. And in that reality, understanding that that would separate us from a loving Father for eternity, it should cause us to cry out to God in desperation, to be broken over that and cry out to Him in desperation. But in the absence of mourning, there's only, the Bible says, pride and unbelief that we can just look down our nose at the things of God and the truth of His Word. And the Bible says it is cowardice not to face the truth of our eternal situation. It's cowardice. And to perpetuate that cowardice, we wind up in unbelief and we wind up eternally separated from God because death is coming for every human being, that, and that's a promise. It's still one for one. Every birth, there's a death, except for one guy. Okay, We all know who that is. Jesus said something profound in Matthew 5. If you'll turn there to Matthew 5, I want to take another look at this passage that you've probably read many, many times. Uh, this is prior to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So that's, that's what makes this passage interesting. It's in Matthew 5. And he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he's laying out the road to salvation for these folks there on the mountain. But remember, this is before he died, so he couldn't say, Hey, y'all... Uh, um, if you were to die today and stand before and stand before God in heaven, you know he couldn't start with the gospel message that we start with because he hadn't been crucified, he hadn't been buried, and he hadn't been resurrected yet. So, how is Christ going to present the gospel? Let's look at this. He says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness." for they shall be satisfied. I'm going to cover those verses this morning. Now, just reading this at face value, of course, we get a blessing from it. But when we really understand what Christ is talking about in this passage, it becomes incredibly hopeful 
and an encouraging truth for every believer. It is the good news. It's the gospel right here in red letters. And as I said before, I want to set it alongside the words of Paul in what we know as the Roman road of salvation. How many of you guys have ever heard of the Roman road? Anybody? So, yeah, it's the passages in Romans that essentially will allow you, if you memorize these passages, you can lead someone to Christ. And, and since many of you guys didn't raise your hand, and that's something I know we can cover over the next year, and, uh, and, and that will help us. It's just a guide using Scripture alone to lead someone to Christ who may be seeking the Lord, okay? So, uh, Jesus said, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.'" In contrast, not in contrast, but just uh, the Spirit through Paul defines what it means to be poor in spirit. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there is no one righteous, no, not one. That's poor in spirit. Spiritually bankrupt. Okay? That's what it means to be poor in spirit. So he's saying, Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. And not just the spiritually bankrupt, but those who realize that they are spiritually dead, that they spiritually cannot help their situation, okay? So when we understand this, we come to that realization and that uh, our absolute best efforts for somehow fulfilling right or being righteous enough to stand before God is just impossible. And that's what it means to be poor in spirit. When you come to that understanding, okay, no hope of seeing the kingdom of heaven, And that should break our hearts. It should lead us to godly sorrow and repentance and mourning. And what does Jesus say next in Matthew? He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, what did the Spirit say through Paul in Romans 6.23? He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, there's bad news, but let me tell you the good news. The wages of sin is death, and once you've come to that realization, once you've uh, been spiritually poor and you realize that and you mourn over it, then you can see what's next, what the good news is. The finished work of Jesus, and because of that, because of the finished work of Jesus, we have an eternal hope of glory, and the kingdom of heaven is awaiting for those who are spiritually poor. And then there's this eternal comfort promised to the mourner, those who mourn. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this word meek is often understood. We think meek is weak. And I don't know why we think meek is weak, but it's actually just the opposite. The picture of meekness here is of a war horse dressed for battle with all the armor on and, and the reins and the, and the helmet and all this, this mighty war horse dressed for battle, Okay. It stands ready in all of its power, but it does not make one single move on its own. It waits for the will of its master. It waits for the will of the rider. And when the rider prompts it to go left, it goes left. When the rider prompts it to go right, it goes right. A horse has much more strength than the rider, but yet it submits its own will and strength to the rider. Do you understand that picture of meekness? It is, it is great strength given over in submission to the master, okay? So to be meek for us is to lay aside our own will and submit all of our strength, all that we are, to our master. And so what does the Spirit say uh, through the Apostle Paul in Romans 10.9? It's the same thing, a picture of meekness, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is meekness. Let me explain why. Because to confess Jesus as Lord is not lip service. It's not just saying words, Jesus, I confess you as Lord. When they confessed Jesus as Lord, it meant they were denying that Caesar was Lord and it could cost their life. It's the same thing for us. To confess Jesus as Lord means I submit all that I am, I submit everything to Christ Jesus as my Lord, no matter the cost. That's what it means to be meek, all right? So meekness at work is submitting all your strength, all that defines you, handing it over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, our Master. It is the opposite of arrogance and unbelief. 
We're broken by our spiritual condition. We mourn that it is hopeless. We submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And because, um, and because we look to Him and because we humble ourselves and we call upon Him, His righteousness then covers us. His righteousness covers us. We do not contribute any righteousness to this thing at all. At all. It's all Jesus. In Romans 10, 13, Romans 10, 13, it says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, this is not just lip service. Hey, Jesus, you're my Lord. Hey, Jesus, I want to be saved. That's not what we're talking about here. It's submission of your life to the Lordship of Christ. And when you confess Him as Lord, when you call upon His name, it's like a man who is drowning in the ocean and is about to breathe his last breath and he cries out for help. That is the picture of calling out to the Lord. That's what it means. So in Matthew, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the Spirit through Paul in Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is that peace that everyone is so desperate for. That's what everybody needs and wants in this world. Through Jesus Christ, we can have a relationship and peace with God. And when we come to the understanding that we have no peace and we have no relationship because of our sin, then that should cause us to mourn. If we go back to the passage in Revelation 21, if you'll turn there with me very quickly, Revelation 21, we actually see the final and complete fulfillment of this Sermon on the Mount, of those who accept Christ, those who confess Him as Lord, those who put their faith in Him. Romans 21 uh, talks about those who humble themselves, those who confess and submit to His Lordship, and those who continue in the faith. And just prior to this passage, it describes the new heaven and the new earth, okay? In this new reality, this new eternal existence. Revelation 21.5, it says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, They are done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. So in this life, we face thirst and hunger spiritually, and it may cost us everything. In the next life, we get to drink freely, and there is no cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So you see, mourning is the gateway. It's the door into relationship with Christ, and you have to go through that gate. We all have to come to the realization of our own sin and how it keeps us out of relationship with Christ. We, once we have known Christ, once we have accepted Christ and we have submitted to His Lordship, then what does the relationship to sin become? Well, we know we're not perfect and we know we're being changed, right? We're being sanctified. We're in that process. So we obviously have issues from time to time, dealing, struggling with sin. But we should not flirt with sin. Remember what our passage said? If your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. I don't want to see anybody come in next week with an arm missing, okay? That's not, don't, don't take this literally. It's saying that no matter what it is that's causing you to sin, the priority needs to be relationship with Christ. And if it causes you to sin, get rid of it. Get it out of your life. Get as far from from it as you possibly can. Do you understand? There's nothing worth uh, hurting your relationship and your uh, oneness with Christ. All right? Um, We should not edge our toes up to the the very edge of what sin is and, and flirt with disaster, right? It's like, well, I'm... I know what sin is. I'm going to take it right up to the edge and not step over. That's not, that is not the heart and that is not the attitude of someone who loves Christ. You don't want to have anything to do with it. 
you understand the consequences of that. The true believer also does not create a list of things that are acceptable and some things that are questionable and then things that are absolutely not. It's like, let me, let me just describe to you the absolute best way that you can live your life and not even have to consider what sin is or isn't. If there's anything even questionable, anything with an appearance of evil, why would you want to be anywhere near it? Why would you even want to risk it? To sin as a believer is to dishonor God and to make a mockery of the wrath that Jesus incurred on the cross. The wrath of God that He took upon Himself on your behalf. And to sin after the fact willingly means that you are making a mockery of that sacrifice. And here's the key. Here's what I promised a moment ago. In everything that we do and say, we should desire to honor Christ and to reflect Him and His glory and to live a life that is worthy of the sacrifice that He made for us. Amen? Everything that we do and say, the Bible Paul says to take every thought captive. Every thought that, yeah, it's a big deal. We want to protect our relationship with Christ above all. And so I will take every thought captive. Everything that comes out of my mouth, I will hold up to the truth of Scripture. Every, everything I do, I will hold up to the truth of Scripture. And if it does not align, then I throw it as far away from me and my family as I possibly can. When believers falter, when we fail, when we fall into to sin, it's the same thing. It's godly sorrow. It's repentance. We, we fall on our face before God and, and we, we tell Him we love Him and we're sorry. And, and that's the same relationship. The difference is now we know Christ and we want to protect that relationship and so we fall on our face before Him and thank Him that He's already paid the price. There is no condemnation. We just need to admit when we've been stupid and then get back in right relationship with Him again. See, and then there's this third thing that we see in this passage, the local church. The local church is designed by Christ. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. He says, upon this rock I will build my church. My church. He designed it. He revealed to the Apostle Paul exactly what was to be expected in the body of Christ, in our conduct, and in the way we interact with one another as the local church. And he designed it in such a way that we would hold one another accountable to a life that reflects Christ and God's holiness. And we want to give him glory as a local body, okay? So the local church makes that much easier if we all humble ourselves and we submit to one another and to what Scripture teaches. If we say we are Christ followers, and this is what God's Word says a Christ follower should do and reflect, then when we step out of line of God's Word, then it is our job as brothers and sisters in Christ to lovingly come to one another and edge each other nudge one another back into the fellowship and say, look, God's word says that this is wrong. That's how it's supposed to work. But these days we don't talk about anything that might offend because it might actually cause the giving to go down, right? It might actually offend people and they leave and then we don't have this well-oiled machine and, and the money's not flowing like it used to. You see what I'm saying? It becomes this trap that we get in. But what I want you to see more than anything is that Christ designed the church so that we could all encourage one another and build one another up and hold one another accountable. And that's not easy. It's not easy to be the one being held accountable, right? We, it's much easier to just go down to a, another church down the road that won't talk about these kinds of things or where people won't actually say, hey, so, um, man... Did I see you, like, with another woman? Like, that, that wasn't your wife? I mean, we're going to have some hard conversations. That's the purpose. Did I see you, this or that? Now, we're not talking about gossip. There's a godly way to go about this. 
If you as a believer and a follower of Christ say, I believe God's word and I submit to, to the authority of Christ in my life and I am accountable to everybody in this room, I am letting everybody know that I am a follower of Christ and I believe what scripture says, then in that statement alone, you are saying that when I do or say things that dishonors Christ or is contradictory to the word of God, then we as a body, you are inviting us to come to you in a loving fashion and in the way that God's word dictates. And we say to you, brother, we love you. Sister, we love you. You need to consider this. We want to bring you back in our fellowship. And look, the way it works out is if this person is unrepentant, if they're arrogant, if they're prideful, and they choose not to repent, then God's word is very clear here in 1 Corinthians 5.1. Let's read this again. We're going to close in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 5.1 and 2. Paul says, so this thing's been going on in the church, and he's hearing word all the way. I mean, you know, miles and miles away, he's hearing word of what's going on at the church at Corinth, and nobody's doing anything about it. He says it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and sexual immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles. Like the heathens aren't even doing this. Like the, he's, he's sleeping with his mother, like his stepmother, okay? That's what's happening in the church. He's, his, his, he's having an affair with his father's wife, okay? That's the kind of thing that's going on here. And Paul says... That doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. I haven't even heard that going on among the heathens. And he says, um, And you have become puffed up and have not mourned. You, the church, have become prideful. You don't want to go talk to that person. You don't want to deal with it because of your pride. And you have not mourned. And so it creates this very difficult and awkward situation and he says, what should happen here is the one who had done this deed should be removed from your midst. That's how it should have been handled. So, in all of this, we see that the desires of this world and sin, that, that we're not immune to those desires, to those temptations. We're going to face them every single day. And it may simply be anger issues, right? You know, everyday happenings in our world. But they can easily entangle us. And any time we have to look face to face at the consequences of our broken relationship with Christ. When we have sin in our life and we know that that fellowship is broken and even at the very least we... We know we're free in Christ. We know we're forgiven. And when we fail, let us go before him in humility and say, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that while I was yet a sinner, you died for me. See, here's the most important thing. The world will tell you, and many, many churches will tell you, that Christ died for us because we were worth so much to Him. But the truth is that we are worthless until we have Christ. And once we have Christ, then we become this treasure. Then we have great worth and value to God. Amen? So that's what we have to understand. Now, folks, uh, we have a whole new year ahead of us. And... I'm going to ask you to pray for those in your life that you know those three groups that we talked about at the beginning. There are those who encourage you and love you and lift you up and they love Jesus and, and they're a part of your life. And then there are those that you know that, that, that claim to be Christians and that probably are Christians, but they're going through a time of rebellion or misunderstanding or whatever you want to call it, you need, you need to pray for them and ask the Lord to use you in bringing them back into fellowship with Christ. And then, of course, there are those who, who don't know Christ, who believe they do, who wear that badge. And, and this is the most tragic of all because we can't really make a judgment ourselves of who's saved and who's not. 
but we can to some degree know by the fruit in their lives of whether or not they truly love the Lord and truly serve the Lord because to truly know Him, we endure. We, we are broken and we come back into the fellowship. We, we are desperate to be in the presence of other believers and of God. And so we're surrounded by these three different types of people in our lives every single day and we don't always know who's who. But I would just say maybe this year, maybe the first two weeks of this year, make it a point to pray that God would use you specifically, that He would sovereignly bring people in your life that you can point to Scripture. And maybe this morning you're saying, well, well, Pastor, I don't know enough Scripture, or I don't know... I mean, the Romans Road is a great place to start, so just Google the Romans Road. It'll line it all out for you, and you can see how you can walk somebody through what it means to follow Christ, to truly follow Christ. And I believe that if we will all make it a point to do that on an individual level, that it will have a great deal of effect on our families and we could affect those around us in our communities and those we love. And look, you know, whether or not this church grows in numbers is beside the point because Christ will build His church. The people that come here, Christ will bring here. And we're not worried about doing anything fancy to try to fill all the seats. What we will do is faithfully proclaim the Word of God as it is written. We will not water it down one iota, and I understand that that's going to tick some people off and they may not feel comfortable here. But for those of you who are like, yes, I just want the Word of God, this is the place to be. This is the place to be. We're committed to that. And as you grow in your knowledge of the Word, you will grow in your love for Him. You will grow in the power of the Spirit as you live your daily lives and you will have an impact on those around you that you love. It's going to happen. Not for your glory, not for my glory, not so we can point at one another and say, look how awesome we are. He deserves all the glory. Amen? Let's pray.